So the physical characteristics are important, but -hmm. they're not definitive. Mm -hmm. I've seen people with utterly flat chests with very little breast development, with a huge wide space who even had oversupply. And I've seen people with breasts that looked full and round and there was no reason to think anything about them, who it turned out there was barely anything happening. There was very little glandular tissue. Yeah. Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Maria. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy and through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the answers to the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. And welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 62. I'm here with the amazing and talented Maria Petty. Amazing and talented. Where's my magic wand? Um, This week, we're going to be talking about insufficient glandular tissue. Ooh, my favorite. Is it your favorite? It's so my favorite because it's not well recognized. Mm -hmm. That's true. But first, have you heard about the nurses who made that ick video? Did you see that video? I didn't watch the video, but I did hear about it. Yeah. So it was basically these nurses that made ick videos where they trash talk patients pretty much. Gross. Yeah. Like my ick is when you come in for your induction talking about can I shower and eat and all this other stuff. So basically making fun of patients for things that they say or do. So they ended up getting disciplined. Okay. They work at Atlanta's Emory University Hospital. How were they disciplined? Were they like put on leave? I think so. Yeah. But the hospital on their Instagram page, the hospital referred to the nurses as former employees. Oh, so, But did not respond for comments to confirm whether they yeah. were fired. I think in that situation, you know, they probably deserved some punishment because that's really mean. It is. Mostly it's just inappropriate, right? Yeah. Like, I, it's fine to bitch amongst yourselves, right? And complain about your day with your coworkers. They can all empathize with you. But to like put that out there to the broader public, almost like shaming people. Right. Shaming people. It is. And I can't imagine like a first time mom to be, you know, scrolling through, finding that video. And even subconsciously, now that's going to be in the back of her, her head when she goes into the hospital and she's going right. to. Spend the time where, you know, what if I say something? Are they going to make fun of me? Am I going to end up in the next TikTok video and whatnot? Yeah. Not really set up a good relationship for care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which goes to show not everybody who becomes a nurse was really meant to be a nurse. Yeah. Not everybody in healthcare really cares. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. So let's go for our question of the week. This week's question is, I read that iron levels in breast milk are low. Should I supplement my baby with iron? Oh, I mean, first of all, that would be a conversation to have with your pediatrician, but not necessarily because the iron in breast milk is more readily absorbed than the iron in formula. Mm -hmm. And typically we have with like a standard, if you had a standard American diet, the iron in your breast milk would be sufficient. If you were on like a vegan diet, maybe, or maybe a restricted diet for whatever food sensitivity issues or something like that, you might be more careful. You might need to personally take an iron supplement to try to increase the amount of iron in your breast milk. Right. Plus the babies are born with about six months worth of iron stored in their body. Right. So they don't need a whole lot of 
iron to begin with the first six months. Yeah. But I think what's misleading is like all of the formula out there says fortified with iron and they have to do that because again, the iron and formula is really poorly absorbed. So they have to basically pump it up full of iron in order to get sufficient qualities into the babies, sufficient quantities into the babies versus the iron in breast milk, which is designed to be like well-absorbed. I forget even what the percentage of, there was an actual number to that percentage of how much it's absorbed. And I forget what that is. I think it was 15% where the iron in formula was 4%. There you go. Or something like that. And then I was reading also today that something in the formulas, iron actually can create an iron deficiency in the baby's body. Hmm. I had like one study that came out with that. So interesting. I wonder if it's a specific type of iron that they're putting in it? Maybe, but that was a great question there. I mean, there are situations like premature babies often to have to be on iron supplements and babies with certain medical conditions. But if you have a healthy full-term baby with no risk factors for anything, then you don't have to worry about iron. Iron's a tricky vitamin anyway to take as a supplement because it means a lot of other things to really be readily absorbed into your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. You can't just take iron by itself. Yeah. And it can be really constipating too. And be tremendously constipating. Yeah, for sure. Nobody enjoys that. All right. And next up, we are speaking with our guest, Kristen Cavuto, all about insufficient glandular tissue. This week, we are speaking with Kristen Cavuto from Kristen Cavuto Consulting. Kristen is a licensed clinical social worker and an international board certified lactation consultant in private practice in central New Jersey. Her practice specialties are low supply, parental and infant maternal health in the intersection of ethnicity, sexual orientation, and gender in the care of the new family. They have spoken on various lactation, mental health, and equity topics for many regional, national, and international conferences and organizations. She serves as a legal advocate and expert witness for cases involving lactation and child welfare. Kristen is the mother of two children who are now 17 and 14. They are an anti-racist LGBT plus activist and a member of the Transformative Works fandoms and makes fighting for a better world part of her daily life. Hi, Kristen. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thanks for jumping on with me this morning to talk about this topic, insufficient glandular tissue. I really hate that name, by the way. I don't know. Do you like the the word insufficient? Yeah, it's like very triggering to me for some reason. Right. And when I first started learning about this topic, we just called it hypoplasia. And mm-hmm. that felt much more neutral. That felt like a neutral descriptor of the situation yeah. rather than something that felt very judgy. So yes, now the accepted term tends to be IGT. I still don't love it. I still tend to say hypoplasia just as often. Yeah, that's what when I'm talking to parents, that's the term that I tend to use because I feel like otherwise I'm telling them that they're insufficient in some way. Right. And, and right. they're not by all means. Right. So. It's like telling people they have an incompetent cervix. It's just rude. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, that's a good <laughs> that's a good one too. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a IBCLC and a uh, licensed clinical social worker. I'm in private practice. I live in central New Jersey and I do lots and lots of things with lots of people. My practice specialties are low supply, obviously, and parental and infant mental health. And do you have children of your own as well? I do. I have two boys and they're 17 and 14 and they're enormous. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's kind of like the day that my kids towered over me. I'm like, I'm done. Like that's right. that's not fair. It's not fair. Yeah, they're like grown up, and like my older one is like a man. Like mm-hmm. he like it's just it really he's applying to colleges now, and he's just so grown up. He's driving and like dating. And it's been a whole process, but it's actually Mm -hmm. really nice to see them get older. I actually enjoy them the older they get. I do too. And then they're like, they need you less, right? So it's it's nice that I can leave the house and not worry about having a babysitter or who's going to watch the baby. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so nice to be needed less physically. Mm -hmm. And I would say they still are very cuddly, which I love. And they still definitely need emotional support and advice. I'm lucky that we're close. They come to me for all that stuff. I get to hear about all their dating, which sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to hear that much about it, but I do. (laughs) I hear sometimes more than I wanted to. I figure that's better than hearing less. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's definitely nice not to have to like bathe people, change diapers, worry about like every drop of food that goes into their mouth, Mm -hmm. especially since I had low supply, which is how I became a low supply person. And so I spent the first you know, many months of both of their lives worrying about every drop that went into their mouth. Mm-hmm. Right. So for those who might not know, what is hypoplasia slash IgG? Sure. So there's lots and lots and lots of reasons why someone might have low milk supply. And most of those reasons are not IgT. Most of those reasons are, you know, management of lactation that's not going well, or a lot of them are baby-sided issues like tethered oral tissues or structural issues or lots of reasons that could be have to do with the baby. And then there are parent-sided issues. And there's lots of them that aren't IGT, okay? Like there's other endocrine issues, there are medication issues. There's lots of things that can cause lactation to not be working and not enough milk to be being made. When we rule all of the other ones out, that's when we come to IGT. So IGT in a lot of ways is an assessment or a diagnosis of exclusion. There are some characteristics of it. Some of them are physical and those are pretty obvious and we can talk about those. But really, 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 we look at everything else first and we rule everything else out because it's usually something else. IGT is not super, super common, but when it happens, it really impacts everything. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like kind of like colic, right? Colic is, like you said, an exclusionary... Like right. colic like, is just a way of saying your baby cries and we can't figure out why. We've ruled everything out and, you know, right. your baby just cries and good luck. <laughs> and kind of like that. I mean, IGT is a real physical diagnosis. What it means is that somebody, their body did not create enough glandular tissue, enough milk making tissue. And so there are three times in life where our bodies make milk making tissue. One is when we are inside of our moms. So when we are fetuses, that first glandular tissue is laid down. The most important time is during puberty. So when we're you know, developing our breasts during puberty, that's when most of that milk-making tissue is laid down. And the third time is during pregnancy. So with each pregnancy, we make a little bit more glandular tissue, which is why for most people with every pregnancy, you'll have a little bit more milk. And that includes people with IGT. With, most, with each pregnancy, you'll usually have a little more milk, even if it's never a full supply. So with IGT, what it means is that usually at one of the times, either when you were a fetus or during puberty, something went wrong. So it could be something endocrine, like hypothyroidism. It could be insulin resistance. It could be exposure to pesticides. There's a lot of different things that we know could be things that went wrong, but something went wrong and your body didn't make the glandular tissue that it was supposed to make at that time. Mm-hmm. And so that's what IGT is. It's a very physical, concrete thing that you just simply don't have the tissue you need to make milk. 
So what are some things that can happen when you're a fetus inside your mother, your parent? So that's the more rare case. So that's IGT where you see someone who really does have almost no breast development. That's pretty rare. That's like the most intense kind of IGT. So someone will have a very flat chest with maybe just little tiny breast buds, like what you would see on someone who's just starting puberty, like around a 10 or 11 year old, just with those little puffy nipples and nothing else. So that's IGT that would be caused by something that happened when you were a fetus. Like sometimes people who've had chemical exposures, their mothers had chemical exposures when they were pregnant. That's pretty rare. The most common kinds of IGT are sort of partial IGTs where some glandular tissue developed. The breast can even look very, very normal. And those things usually happen when something went wrong during puberty. Maybe I remember hearing about this in your presentation because I've been to your presentation about IGT. Isn't there like a medication that some a bunch of parents were taking that they later found out they were taking during pregnancy and they later found out that that caused IGT? In the babies, am I'm I not sure. Correctly? I don't think so. I think you might you might be thinking of what is it, thalamide that was causing birth defects in this in the sixties, fifties. Oh, that's for, for the morning sickness, right? Right, and that was causing limb yeah. deformities. Really, I'm gonna I look that up because I, yeah. I believe I have a memory of learning about, and I think it was like an antidepressant or something. That well, there are definitely some antipsychotics that can cause low milk supply, mm-hmm. but usually that's in an adult person who's taking them. Yeah. We don't have any evidence that taking them during pregnancy would cause that in the fetus. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so really the very severe IGT is very rare. We almost never see that. And honestly, most people who identify as women who have that form of IGT will have had a breast augmentation because Mm -hmm. it's so severe that they don't feel... They, they feel deformed. They feel like they need to have something done. And so sometimes as a lactation consultant, when we see someone who's had breast implants and has low supply, one of the questions we can find out is what they looked like beforehand. And sometimes it's one of those situations. Mm-hmm. And do you feel before parents get to you or get to me or whoever they're working with lactation, do you feel like they know about that they have this condition when they have the severe physically apparent kind? Well, if they have a very severe kind, they do. But the vast majority of IGT people don't have that. The vast mm-hmm. majority of IGT people have breasts that look fairly normal. They, there are some definite characteristics, and we can talk about that. But most of them don't know. Most of them have never been told by a physician. They've never been told by their obstetrician or their midwife. And it's a big, unfortunate, ugly surprise when they go to try to nurse for the first time and uh, they're not making milk. Right. I think in my area, it's often missed, especially if they did get a breast augmentation, mm-hmm. you know, as they go through the process of the consulting for the breast surgery, no one ever says to them, like, listen, you might have this condition. That's why your breasts look like this. And right. that's why you want the augmentation. And then the ones who don't get the breast augmentation, it is shocking to me how the OB doesn't discuss it at all with them. Especially when, when it, people have really those physical characteristics. Right. Yeah. I guess, so about what, I guess we should talk about what the common physical characteristics are. Sure. Sure. So for most people who have IGT, you'll see a few things. So the main one is you'll see widely spaced breasts. So that means on the chest wall itself, there's a lot of space between the breasts. So most people can put like a finger or two on their chest wall before the breast starts. People with IGT can usually get a whole hand in there. And what's interesting is actually in the Old Testament, there's information about how like if a woman can put a hand between her breasts, then she may be able to be divorced because she's not going to be able to make milk for her babies. 
Oh, interesting. This is like a known thing. This is, has always been, some people have always been like this. That's one of the most obvious characteristics, that big space on the chest wall. Some people will have a breast asymmetry where one breast will be nice and round and have a good milk supply and the other breast will be clearly smaller or different than the other one. And that would be one-sided IGT. Some people will have a very tubular breast shape. So that will look like they're like, the breasts are have a narrow base and they're sort of long and skinny. Okay, so instead of being rounded, they're long and skinny. Some people have very large or bulbous areolas. Again, just like someone who is just starting puberty, those big puffy nipples. But the main thing that people should look for if they're worried about IGT or they're having low supply when they have a baby and they want to rule it out is did their breasts change during pregnancy and in that first week or so postpartum, right? Because most people, when they're pregnant, they grow a cup size or two while they're pregnant. And then certainly when their milk comes in, it's like, boom, right? Most people have that day where they wake up and they have like the porn star boobs and they're like, whoa, okay, there's some serious boobs here. People with IGT don't have those changes. So there's minimal or no breast growth during pregnancy. Your breasts look exactly the same at nine months pregnant as they did before you got pregnant. And in that first week postpartum, again, minimal change or no change at all. That is probably the biggest red flag for IGT as a cause of low supply. Do you also feel like veining plays a part too? Like one of the things that I always look for is veining, how much veining. Sure. And we like to see some nice veining in pregnant people and in postpartum. I would say that that is a decent sign when you have a thin person with light skin. The thing is, is that if you have somebody who's fatter or you have somebody who has darker skin, that veining is not going to be as obvious, even if they had plenty of it. So sometimes people will miss that as a sign when they're working with darker skin clients or when they're working with fatter clients. So it's not, it is good for some people. It's not great for everyone as a sign. So is it that you can have no issues until you get to that puberty stage where you're laying down the breast tissue? So maybe like nothing happened during your fetal stage and everything was laid down normally at Mm -hmm. that stage. But then during puberty is when the issues start or even during puberty, you had like a normal laying down of that breast tissue, but then during pregnancy, something changed. So with IGT, it's not during pregnancy. So with IGT, it's, I would say probably 95% of the cases, it's something during puberty happens. Mm -hmm. The ones that happen in the embryonic stage are actually pretty rare. And -hmm. again, those are the super severe cases where there's just no breast tissue. And that's pretty rare. Most people who have IGT have, again, mostly normal looking breasts, except for some of those signs, like they're widely spaced and they lack some roundness in the different quadrants. Mostly it's at puberty where things tend to go wrong. And it's usually endocrine issues. It's usually things like insulin resistance or hypothyroidism or being very underweight and not really having enough cycles. There's some evidence that being put on birth control very, very early, like before your periods have been established, can cause some problems because you don't have time that that the first few years of cycling that helps you lay down that breast tissue. We don't have good evidence of that yet, but there is some thought about that. So something went wrong with your hormones and your breast development during puberty is the most common cause. And you mentioned exposure to like pesticides and and chemicals. Yeah, those things are almost always the people who have the very severe ones and that's the embryonic. So we Mm -hmm. have, for instance, the, the cases we hear about that are people who were pregnant and they had like they lived in a place where the planes flew over with the pesticides, like really heavy exposure. Their babies then were born and grew up and had very minimal breast growth. But again, that's probably 5% of IGT cases. That's really not very common. 
most people are going to have the, the puberty cases where you look mostly normal, but there's just not enough glandular tissue on the inside. Is there like a higher risk if you're going through puberty and at that point you're exposed to like pesticides or other? Not the norm. It doesn't seem like there's evidence about like the normal amount of pesticides. Like this is not a call for everyone to say if you your teenagers only need to eat organic everything or they're going to have IgG. Sure. sure. We just don't know. We don't. There, mm-hmm. People don't research you know, lactation, there's no money in researching lactation in so many fields. This is something that we have some evidence on. We don't have a ton of it. I imagine that if something, basically if it's enough to, enough of an endocrine issue that will it would affect your periods, it very well may affect your laying down that glandular tissue and your breast growth. Mm-hmm. So someone who's, let's say, anorexic during puberty. Mm-hmm. Someone who has insulin resistance pretty badly during puberty. Someone who has hypothyroidism during puberty possibly someone who is like a type 1 diabetic that's not controlled. Again, all those same things would cause them, their periods to be wonky. It may also cause them to not lay down that glandular tissue. Yeah. One of the questions that I do ask is, you know, breast changes during puberty, did they have a regular period? But if we're kind of investigating low milk supply, I do ask about like, did you grow up on a farm? Did your family own a farm? And sometimes they do so like, oh yeah, like my parents owned a farm and my mom worked on the farm when she was pregnant with me. And those are must be like the cases that you're talking about. It does happen. Absolutely. It would have to be pretty heavy exposure. And again, those people usually have a more severe form of IGT. Yeah. What about like nail salons, things like that? Does that put... We don't have evidence. I can imagine. I don't think going to a nail salon certainly would be a problem. I think that if I was a person who worked in a nail salon Mm -hmm. that had poor ventilation and I was pregnant at the time, I think I'd probably have a lot to worry about. And IGT in my future baby might only be one of the things. Mm -hmm. We don't have any evidence about that, but, you know, I don't think it's probably a great idea to work in a nail salon when you're pregnant. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was just, I worked with a family once where I saw both, they were sisters and they both had IDT and they were talking about how their mom owned a nail salon oh, and well. worked, you know, she owned the salon. So she worked through pregnancy and then they would go after school to the nail salon and run around and play. That, and that was like, like the only thing that we could find. That, that absolutely point. could have been an endocrine disruptor. It could have been during yeah. her pregnancy, it, it interrupted. And it mm-hmm. also could have been as they were growing up and during puberty, they had endocrine disruption just from mm-hmm. that constant exposure. Sure, right. absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so we have physical markers that we look for. And then if there's no obvious physical markers, it's just a matter of like ruling everything else out. Right, Okay. and not everybody has physical markers. It's possible to have breasts that don't have physical markers and just simply don't have glandular tissue. And you can definitely, there's some imaging like ultrasound that can show the glandular tissue. A very experienced IBCLC can do a physical exam and often feel glandular tissue. Mm-hmm. Though I will say that that's not 100%. It depends on how much fatty tissue there is in the breast. In a large and fatty breast, it's often hard to feel that glandular tissue and to right. differentiate between the two. So that really, again, depends on the person's body type, whether even someone who's very experienced can really palpate and feel that. Also, depending on someone's overall health and their endocrine system, some people who don't have a whole lot of glandular tissue will still make enough milk because what they have makes good milk. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we really, you know, 
we can't look at a pair of breasts and say these breasts are for sure not going to work. Just like we can't look at them and say these breasts are for sure going to work. We won't know until we have proof. Yeah. And I remember when I was a new IBC, so very new, and I was working in the hospital, I came across a patient where I had that thought like this, this parent is never going to be able to make milk based on the physical signs in her breasts. And she came back to the support group that we had every week and she did it. She had a full milk supply. It was always like just like she could never have a surplus or anything like that. But she was just eking it past that that line where she was able to provide for her baby. Exactly. So the physical characteristics are important, but Mm -hmm. they're not definitive. Mm -hmm. I've seen people with utterly flat chests with very little breast development, with a huge wide space, who even had oversupply. And I've seen people with breasts that looked full and round, and there was no reason to think anything about them, who it turned out there was barely anything happening. There was very little glandular tissue. Yeah. Then something I'll say to the parents that I'm working with is, you know, if you don't have a full factory of workers, but you have like the workers that you do have are extremely efficient and good at their job, like it could still work, even though you're short staffed. And that's how when we talk about, okay, someone has low supply. Now, what do we do Mm -hmm. when we talk about using certain galactagogues or medications that increase milk supply? That's how they work when they work for someone with IGT. What we do is basically cause an oversupply in the glandular tissue they do have, meaning that then they're able to make more milk. Right. So when you're working with a parent who you suspect has IGT, what kind of care plan are you setting them up on? How are you guiding them through this? Sure. So once we've determined that someone does have IGT, and that, that's a bit of a process, and that's definitely not somewhat something that someone can come to on their own, right? That's something you're working with an IBCLC for. We have several ideas. So if they really say, I want to make more milk, it's super important to me to make as much milk as I can, there are certain things we can do to try to maximize their milk supply. Now, we might be having someone who's literally making a micro supply. We're talking about someone who in 24 hours, instead of the typical 25 to 30 ounces of milk, they're making less than five, okay? Mm -hmm. So with someone like that, we can maximize what they have, but it's still, we're not gonna be able to maximize it to 25 to 30. We maybe could bring them from five to 10, okay? Which which is not nothing. It's certainly, Mm -hmm. you know, every drop counts and it, it can be helpful. So we work with a combination of, at the if it's in the first few weeks, some extra pumping can help just to get some more stimulation. If it's in the very first few weeks, there are some herbal medications that may help take advantage of those breast growth that's laid down right in those first few weeks and get us a little more milk. There are a few herbs that tend to help, like Moringa is not is one that's pretty good for people. And then we go to the prescriptions and that just depends on whether the person in conjunction with their physician think that that's a good idea for them. I have found that both Reglan and Domperidone do work for most people with IGT, not to mostly make a full supply, but do increase it by, again, Mm -hmm. causing oversupply in the glandular tissue that they do have. Mm -hmm. And when you are, do you feel like if you're working with a parent prenatally, you have a much higher chance of maximizing their milk supply than versus when they come to you like two weeks after the baby's born. If let's say someone is on their second baby and they knew that they had Mm -hmm. a very low supply with their first and they come to me prenatally, we can start earlier. So for instance, Mm if in the, in the, by 36 weeks of pregnancy, they can start an herb called goat's rue. And that herb actually can help build glandular tissue. Now, again, if somebody has a true IGT, we're not going to take them from very little milk to a full supply, but it can help. Basically, it helps augment the hormones in the end of pregnancy and the beginning of postpartum to build a little bit more. 
if they also have something like insulin resistance, which so many of us have, Mm -hmm. we can treat the insulin resistance. And what that does is make the breast tissue they have more sensitive to insulin, thus creating more milk in that tissue. So we can play around with their endocrine system to try to maximize what they do have. So that's basically what we do. And what I want to be really clear with IGT is that it's not all about the milk. Especially in these early days, everyone is so focused on weight gain and every drop and milk, milk, milk. And I understand that's so important when you have a brand new baby, especially if they're not gaining well. It's very scary. But what's important is that it doesn't really matter how much milk you make in terms of being a successful nursing parent. What I've learned from my own journey and from working with so many clients with IGT is that even with no milk or with very little milk, they can still nurse their baby successfully. We use a supplemental nursing system to do that. And it really is a savior of so many nursing relationships for people with very, very low milk supply. I will never forget this family. They were lovely and the mom was so laid back and chill about everything. And we determined she had IGT. She was she had like a micro supply and she tried the whole, you know, triple feeding, like pumping, trying to bring up her supply. And she was just like, you know what? I really hate pumping and I don't want to do this. And she basically dry nurse for a year. And she wrote me an email around when the baby was turning a year old saying it was her her favorite time of day was when she got home from work and her daughter would come running up to her with her arms up and they'd sit on the couch and dry nurse. And then she would just top off with Fabia after. And it was like the perfect feeding plan for her. She loved it. Yep. And some babies will absolutely do that. In my experience, most babies, because babies are very, very smart and very, very competent, if they're not getting any milk at all at the breast and their bottle gives them plenty of milk, most babies will stop nursing somewhere around three or four months when those when the suck reflex goes away and they have a choice mm-hmm. about when something goes in the mouth, whether they suck or not. So that was a great plan for them. And I'm really glad that worked. I find that most people won't have that for longer than a few months. And that's why we use the supplemental nursing system, which is just a little bottle that hangs around your neck and tubes, little tiny tubes go to each nipple and go right into the baby's mouth along with your breast. And then you can deliver your donated milk, your pumped milk or your formula while the baby's nursing. And that basically reminds the baby, oh, food comes from boobs, whether it's coming from the SNS or from the breast, they don't know. And so then they're mm-hmm. much more likely to stay at the breast longer. Mm-hmm. And so when you're guiding a family and using an SNS, what do you, can you kind of walk us through that process? I know there's no more than one. Mm-hmm. Which one do you prefer and why? And how? what tips do you give them for using an SNS? Because I know at first it can be overwhelming for right. some family to have to use the SNS. So I always set expectations. Well, the first thing I say is, this is about building muscle memory, just like everything about breastfeeding is building muscle memory. You will absolutely throw it across the room and curse my name at least once in the first week. I always set that expectation. But once you get the hang of this, this will be your best friend. I know, you know, I use the SNS with both of my kids and I use it as a demo one. Now, when I take it out of my bag, I give it a little pat because I love it. It's enabled me to nurse my kids. So there's a few kinds. There's kinds that are homemade SNSs. And what that usually is, is just a bottle, a little hole cut in the nipple to put the tube in. And then it just attaches to the tube with the, to the breast with a little bit of tape. Those are great for really temporary use. We use those all the time. And I'm sure you use those all the time for people who have temporary low supply because of a rough start or Um, oral ties, things like that. Those work great temporarily. In my experience, those are not great long-term IGT tools. There's two commercial 
supplemental nursing systems. There's the lactate and the Medela SNS. They're both good and there's good advantages to both of them. A lot of people like the lactate because you can nurse laying down with it and people enjoy that. The disadvantage to it is that you have to use replace. There's bags instead of a, a hard bottle and they need to be replaced. So that's a consumable you need to buy. And it's also not great for the environment to be constantly, you know, single use plastic. The Medela SNS is, a, is like a bottle. It's a firm plastic. So it just needs to be washed out. It doesn't need to be replaced. That's what I use. So that's what I'm most comfortable with. But either one of them work really, really well. The tubes that use with them are very, very thin and very, very soft and flexible. And so it's very easy to latch the baby with them. And I find if I'm working with a family prenatally and we suspect the the parent has IGT, especially if they already have a history of low milk supply, I think it's helpful to practice with the SNS system before the baby even arrives with just some water, like practice putting it on and lining against your nipple. And instead of like trying to figure out how to use it at when you've got a screaming baby. And you're also learning how to latch. Yes, you're, yeah. you're, with an SNS, you're still wanting to get a nice, deep, good latch, just like mm-hmm. you would if you're nursing without it. Mm-hmm. And what's great is that it, what it means is, so when we talk about like the benefits of breastfeeding, some of them have to do with human milk. Absolutely. But some of them have to do with the act of eating at the breast, like the oral development, the ocular development, and some of the emotional bonding. And so even if you have no milk, your baby can still get all of those benefits or all of those biological normalities, however you want to look at it, by eating at the breast, even if they're eating 100% formula at the breast. Mm-hmm. And then you can just enjoy the process and not really worry about like, oh my gosh, how much is the baby getting? You know your baby is being fed and you can just enjoy the process of watching them on and snuggling with them and rocking them while you breastfeed, which I think is amazing. And, And for people who what they wanted was to nurse their baby. And that was what was in, you know, they, they were pregnant and they imagined themselves nursing their baby. That was so important to them. They can be that successful nursing parent and their baby can eat at the chest milk or no milk. It's the same system that we use with people who've had mastectomies or trans men that have top surgery. The SNS works for them too. It's sort of the same thing. IGT is mm-hmm. lack of glandular tissue. Well, they certainly have lack of glandular tissue because of surgery versus a condition. So it's the same sort of process. Mm-hmm. But it's so nice for people who have low supply and who've usually spent the first few weeks in an absolute panic with doctors panicking, with them panicking. It's quite traumatizing to have a baby that's not gaining weight. It's really, really very hard. I mean, just speaking from, you know, an emotional standpoint, it can be, you know, I think I have some PTSD from it. I think a lot of people have some real PTSD from that baby that is just not eating in the first few weeks. And often people don't know why. And it's very scary to know that we can just let it go and say, however much milk I have, when I use the SNS, they get my milk and then they get their supplement milk and they're eating enough and I no longer have to pump. I no longer have to worry about it. Just get to enjoy my baby. Mm-hmm. And again, there's also the option of ceasing lactation and bottle feeding with joy and love is a great option too. And I want to make right. sure that people with IGT know that there is absolutely no shame in that. And if that's what works for them, that's a great option as well. But I want them to know that there are options. IGT does not mean that you ought automatically, you know, have to go to bottle feeding if that's not what you want. Right. Yeah. And that's something I explained to the families I work with too. Like, you know, as long as the baby's getting weight and you're happy feeding your baby, I don't really care what it looks like beyond that, as long as it's working for you and you're happy. Right. But I think for a lot of families I work with too, they like the SNS if, if the baby is starting to show that signs of frustration at the breast and they're starting to reject the breast because there's not enough flow. Mm-hmm. I mean, for some parents, it can be really hard, even though their rational brain knows that 
my baby's not rejecting me. Mm -hmm. The emotional brain, of course, can feel like that. Like, oh, my baby doesn't like me. My baby is rejecting me personally. So to be able to give that baby the flow that they're looking for at the breast, that the baby is like going to the breast happily and feeding happily can be a huge game changer for a lot of these families. Being able to see your baby happily falling asleep with a full belly at the breast, especially Mm -hmm. after the first few weeks of that not happening and being so worried can be so healing. And the mm-hmm. cool part is that if you, let's say you have IGT and you're nursing a baby with an SNS, usually depending on your supply, somewhere between nine months and a year, the baby will be eating enough solids that you can slowly reduce the use of the SNS. And then they can just nurse with what you have. And then you can have a nurse, if you wanted to, you can have a nursing toddler and a nursing toddler that's nursing for love and it's just getting what they get and they're eating plenty of solids. So it's not an issue. And then, you know, so the SNS is not necessarily forever. If you're planning on nursing long-term, it gives you options. So yeah, you can mm-hmm. use the SNS for two or three months and then wean to a bottle. Absolutely. But if you always dreamed of having a full-term nursing kid, right? Like a nursing toddler, an SNS gives you that if you want it. You use it up until the point where they're eating enough solids that you don't need it. And then by then they love nursing and they'll just keep nursing whether you have milk or not at that point. Right. And some families will use the SNS like once or twice a day yeah. and just pump and bottle feed the rest of the feedings. Like it doesn't have to be every feeding that right. you use it if you don't want to. And one of the things that I think my interns must get so sick of hearing me say is this can look like however you want it to look like. Absolutely. Like however you want it. If you don't want to use the SNS every day, even that's fine. If you only want to use it occasionally, that's fine too. can look like however you want it to look like. Absolutely. It's definitely not all or nothing. Most babies, as long as when they come to the breast, they get milk, will be happy to keep nursing. You know, I mean, just like when people go back to work, they have bottles during the day and they nurse at night. Mm-hmm. Babies are flexible, you know. Mm-hmm. So if they're getting bottles sometimes and they're nursing with the SNS other times, they're going to be happy with that. Mm-hmm. Going back to what you said about when you have a second, third pregnancy, you tend to make a little bit more milk. Mm-hmm. Are there things, obviously, working alongside with a lactation consultant? that parents can do? You mentioned some herbs Mm -hmm. and some medications. Are there any other things that parents can do when preparing for the arrival of their next baby to increase supply or their chances? Yeah. The most important thing that a parent can do if they have IGT is to minimize all of the other possible causes of low supply, right? There's only so much we can do about the lack of glandular tissue. If it's not there, it's mostly not there. We can tweak it. We can do our best with it. But really, we have to do other things. So for instance, if you have any signs of insulin resistance, you can work with diet and exercise to get those under control. If you need medications, you can use, you can work with your doctor to get those, to use those like metformin or other medications if your blood sugar is a little high. If you have thyroid issues, even if your thyroid is borderline, you can get that thyroid controlled tightly. That's going to help. You can do all of those little things. If your baby, if you know that your kids have tethered oral tissues, if your first did, if your second did, it's quite likely your third's going to, since it runs in families so much, you know by that point what the treatment plan is and you can get that treatment plan going quickly. And in the meantime, have a good strong pump on for the first few weeks while you're getting that going. So you minimize the baby-sided issues and you minimize the endocrine issues and that will help maximize supply. And you will have Mm -hmm. a little more milk with every pregnancy, even with IgG. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend prenatal hand expression for families? So it, it really just depends. If some people are leakers and some people, you know, because colostrum is not really affected by IgG. You'll have colostrum even with IGT. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So it's really just the copious milk production that's an issue. So if somebody is someone who is easily can hand express or can do a little bit of pumping in that, you know, last month of pregnancy or so, save, you know, doing a little hand expression, a little pumping and saving milk in little syringes in the freezer can get you through the first week or two of, of supplementation after the baby's born. If you know you have IGT and you'll need to supplement, it's nice to be able to supplement with your own milk. But again, then you're going to still find yourself needing more milk because you're most likely not going to have enough. So mm. you'll either go to milk bank milk or informally donated milk, or you'll go to formula. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the milk bank versus informally sure. donated milk. There are just two other ways to get human milk. So you can go through a milk bank. And the good parts about a milk bank is that the milk is screened, the milk is pasteurized. However, it's very expensive to buy. You need a prescription. And I think it's up to what now, like 4 or $5 an ounce? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the milk, at least the milk bank in our area is so short right now. Right. Um, that they're limiting how much milk is available for babies who aren't or in the NICU. Or creamies or basically. sick or in the NICU, yeah. 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 So if you can get milk bank milk, it's also very pricey. And for somebody who really truly has IGT, would be spending a lot of money to get up from, let's say, you know, five to 10 ounces a day to that 25 to 30 that a baby's going to need. So what most people do who don't want, who want to use human milk and have IGT is they go the informally donated route. And there's tons of safe ways to get informally donated milk. And there's lots of good research on that that I'm sure we can link to. But it's, you can screen your donors. You can get their prenatal blood work. You certainly, you know, can meet them and talk to them. And for people who are really concerned, you can do a home pasteurization of donated, of informally donated milk. And that's what a lot of people use, at least partially or fully if they don't want to use formula. Yeah. And I think informal milk donation kind of has like a bad rep and can be presented in a scary way mm-hmm. by like media. But I mean, I'll be honest, I donated milk when I was, I was having recipient. babies. Yeah. And my neighbor, well, she wasn't my neighbor, but she was in the same town. She had IGT and sometimes I'd be driving by and I'd be like, you want me to drop off some milk? And the baby happened to be hungry when I was there. And so I would just kind of pop them on and right. let them be for a little bit. So like yeah. cross nursing isn't as, isn't as popular mm-hmm. as just like providing donated milk, but it is, right. it is an option too. If you find another parent that you feel comfortable with. Absolutely. I was my first, we used a milk bank because he was born in 2005 and really, uh, Informal donation had not been really popularized at that point. But three years later, when I had my second one, I absolutely got informally donated milk. And one of my friends did cross nurse a few times. So if you have, you know, a good friend or family member that happens to be nursing, absolutely. That's a nice way of doing it. Or if they're willing to pump a little bit for you, you know, it's nice to help. Some people have oversupply. Some people make enough milk for two or three babies and Mm -hmm. they get to donate. And that's a nice feeling. Yeah. And for those listeners who are more interested in learning about milk donation, I do have a blog post that I'll link to in the show notes. Kristen, do you have a blog? No, I do not. No, <laughs> I, link, I link to your blog and I link to Rachel O'Brien's blog and I do not have a blog. Rachel's blog is amazing. Yeah. So basically, one of the things that I liked about your talk was in, in the title of your talk was IGT is not a tragedy, right? It's not a tragedy. Tell me more about that because that was like, I mean, I knew that going into your talk, but I didn't know that going into your talk. Do you know what I mean? Uh So the reason I called it that was because I, in case you haven't noticed, I have IGT. And it was hugely traumatic at the time. I called myself, I'm like one of the kids, like a cancer kid that grows up to be an oncologist. I had no, I was living my perfectly good life as a therapist. I had no interest in lactation until I had my lactastrophy. I couldn't nurse. I had a starving baby, et cetera, et cetera. And I figured it out. 
So I worked really hard and it was really hard and I had help and I had a lot of privilege behind it, but I was able to nurse my kids and they nursed full term with the use of an SNS and then nursing through toddlerhood without it. And with the use of, of certain herbs and medications that helped boost me a little bit. So when I became an IBCLC and I started talking to other IBCLCs who didn't have IGT, every time they had a client that had one, they'd be like, this is so sad. This is the worst thing. I hate this so much. I hate having to tell them this is so terrible. And it was a little annoying. I said, hey, this is not a tragedy. People can be absolutely successful nursing parents if that's what's important to them and that's what their goals are. They can meet their nursing goals with IGT. This doesn't have to be a tragedy. I think that when people when a lactation consultant presents it to the client as, oh, this is a terrible thing that's happening to you. This is a horrible thing. Rather than validating their feelings that this is really hard, obviously. But it's really, really hard, but we can deal with this. This is manageable. This doesn't have to be the end of all things. And I think that really was important for me to teach other lactation consultants to stop treating this like a tragedy. Treat this like we treat any other lactation problem. It's a problem. We deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest, like when I was a fresh IBCLC, I worked in the hospital. And at the time there was, and I, I don't think this was just at my hospital. I think it was within the lactation community in general at that time. There was a big division on whether or not you should tell the parent that you know that they have hypoplasia or IGT. Because there was one school of thought where, well, they can't do anything about it anyway. Why make them feel worse about their bodies? And then there was like the more rational school of thought that I subscribe to, like they deserve to know. And it's not, you know, you're not telling them something horrible about their body. So I was just wondering your thoughts on that. And if you felt like you had that experience too, when you were starting out as an IBCLC, if that's what you noticed, like, uh, like providers not telling the parents well, what, they're, what they're noticing. I would say that most, again, most people with IGT, their physical characteristics are not super obvious. Now, obviously there are some that are, but for, I wasn't, no one noticed it on me. Now, obviously I have many of those physical characteristics, but it wasn't enough to make anyone notice, which is what most people have. So nobody told me it was a horrible surprise and it led to my baby suffering and me suffering. So yes, I'm a big fan of talking to people prenatally. Ideally, everybody who wants to nurse would be seeing someone prenatally and getting some education. The way I talk about it is this. I don't say to them, oh, I'm looking at your breasts. Those breasts aren't going to work because that absolutely is, sometimes it's completely wrong as we discussed earlier, but also that's super demotivational. What I say is ideally everybody who's going home with a baby would be told, cool, you're nursing. That's amazing. So glad for you. Here are some red flags. This is what it looks like if a baby's not getting enough to eat. If this happens, reach out for help immediately. And then everybody would go home knowing if I see these signs, I'm going to reach out for help immediately. So I wouldn't necessarily look at someone and say, oh, I think you may have hypoplasia. Because honestly, I've, I've seen so many cases where someone looked like they did and they didn't, or someone looked like they didn't and they did. But I do teach everyone prenatally and immediately postpartum in the hospital when I see people at that point. This is what low supply looks like. This is what real low supply looks like. This is what a baby that's not getting enough to eat looks like. Everybody should know that. Everybody mm -hmm. who goes home nursing should have that information so that if, you know, three or four or five days go by or seven days go by and the baby is showing signs of not getting enough to eat, they immediately get help. At that right. point, we talk about IGT. Yeah. Yeah. And I find the second time parents who come to me who had low supply with their first, who, you know, we kind of are thinking IGT or hypoplasia. 
that we come up with a plan. Like we really ed- do a lot of that education. Like you said, like, all right, days three to five, when your milk comes in, the intake needs go up because like you said, colostrum is not typically an issue, right. right? They have colostrum. So everything looks good in the beginning. And then they're sent home from the hospital right. before things kind of like go down the toilet a little bit. But here are signs that your baby might need because a lot of times they're calling the hotline at the hospital and they're saying, oh my gosh, my three-day-old won't stop crying every time he comes off the breast. And what does that IBCLC say? They say, oh, he's cluster feeding. It's day three. This is normal. Right. Which it might be in general sense normal, but if you know that patient has a history of low milk supply and IDT, it's not normal, right? And it could indicate that there's a problem going on. So having that discussion with the families and preparing them for like, these are the signs that you want to look for to make sure that your baby doesn't lose too much weight. Right. And nobody- I think that just empowers them. And making sure they have the resources in their community other than just the hotline at the hospital. Make sure that they have a list of people in private practice. Make sure that they know that if they have a robust WIC program and they're on WIC and their WIC has great peer counselors and great IBCLCs, that they can go there. There's lots Mm -hmm. of places where people can go for help. Also, if there's any clinics in their area. Right. They do need that help, especially if there's real low supply going on. But yes, everybody who's nursing a baby should understand what real low supply looks like and what the signs are. And they're very obvious. You know, Mm -hmm. a baby that is not having enough wet diapers and dirty diapers in that first week or two of life, especially if they're having any uric acid acid crystals in the diapers, which looks like red brick dust in the diapers. That's a sign of Mm -hmm. dehydration. If that's happening, you need help. If the baby has not regained birth weight by two weeks, you need help. And we don't Mm -hmm. know what the reason would be. Most likely it's not IGT. Most likely there's Mm -hmm. just something going on that's a really common thing. But especially if you have a history with a previous baby, you need to have a plan in place ahead of time. And most people who know they want to nurse the second one after the first one was difficult will reach out for help while they're pregnant and get that plan in place. Right. And I think being aware of like, like you said, connecting with those providers who are knowledgeable and have expertise in this topic and low milk supply too, because, you know, I've, I'm often shocked at how parents say that they call the pediatrician or something because, you know, the baby's wanting to constantly eat and no questions are asked. Right. They don't ask how many peas and poops the, the baby's having. They're, they're not asked what the stool looks like. They're not, you know, it's just like, oh, you're on day three. This is normal. You're fine. Right. And then the baby ends up being readmitted at 15% weight loss because there was no follow-up questions asked. Right. And that's that's wrong. And I will also say, and I think, I think that the IBCLC community has become much more educated since I had my first, but I saw five IBCLCs in the first two weeks of my son's life, five. And not a, it took the fifth one to do a weight feed. Four of oh them, my goodness. four of them came to my house, watched me nurse said, your baby has a great latch. You're doing everything right. Your management is perfect. Their mouth looks great. It'll get better. Mm -hmm. And not a single one of them put the baby on a scale and saw. And when we went to that fifth person, she did a weighed feed. And in a 30 minute both side feed, the baby took a quarter ounce. Mm -hmm. And if they're not doing weighed feeds, you have to wonder what's going on. It's a red flag. (laughs) Yeah. I think we've come a long way as a profession in 17 years. I don't think that someone would have that experience now, but I want to just make it clear out there. If you have a concern about your baby's weight gain, if there's even a worry that your baby, that you have low supply for any reason, you absolutely should be getting a weighed feed with your IBCLC. That's super, super Mm -hmm. important because babies can be tricky. And sometimes it sounds like they're swallowing and they're just swallowing saliva. 
You yeah. can't you can't tell from the outside. Yeah, some, some babies are fakers, and you can't tell from the outside mm-hmm. that just like you can't tell a latch is good because it looks good. It could be tearing the baby up. You're tearing love right. up. You can't tell if a baby's transferring unless you actually are measuring that. Yeah, especially like 36 and 37 weekers. They are huge fakers. Fakers. And I will always do, I mean, I do a test weight almost pretty much 99% of my visits anyway. Right. But especially if they're like late preterm because they may look like they're taking, but they're, they transfer like nothing. Right. nothing. And some babies who happen to have kind of plastic personalities don't fuss when they're not eating enough. They just lay mm. there and don't gain weight. Yeah. And of course, babies that are getting unhealthy and that are getting lethargic aren't capable mm-hmm. of fussing. So mm-hmm. things can get very dangerous and you wouldn't necessarily know unless you know the signs to look for. I thought of a question back when you were talking about like addressing the endocrine issues yeah. can help. I So I'm in Massachusetts and we're kind of like a medical hub, right? We have hospitals and teaching hospitals everywhere. And 99% of the time when I send a parent back to her provider for labs to investigate or address endocrine issues providers are just not willing. They're 100% not willing to run those labs at all. Do you find that is the case in your area too? Yes. Yes. And unfortunately, I'm in a state where you can't order your own labs. I know some states you can. And in those states, it's easy. You can just, I mean, if you're willing to not go through insurance and you can pay for it, you can just go to a lab for a request or wherever and they'll just run the labs for you. But, you know, in my state and in several other ones, you actually have to get a provider to write the script. And it can be really difficult. I would suggest, if possible, getting a relationship with Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine physician. I'm Mm -hmm. lucky that we have one in my area who is an MD IBCLC. And so if someone's provider won't write the script, if their OB won't write the script, if their PCP won't write the script, I can send them to her and Mm -hmm. she will absolutely order those labs. I think functional doctors are much more open to running those labs too. We just don't have a lot of them in my area. I will say though that anyone, if they go to their primary care doctor or their OB and they say, I want a thyroid panel, I want an A1C, I want a vitamin D, those are all normal labs. Those are normal labs. Even if they don't want to run the prolactin, which I think they should, even if they don't want to run some of the other things, the basics, if the doctor mm-hmm. refuses to run those on someone who just had a baby, you definitely should say, okay, I want you to document in my chart that you're refusing to run these labs. And saying those words will get 99% of doctors to immediately order those labs for you. That's a good tip. Yeah. Because a lot of times if they're willing to run anything, it's just a TS. The T4 or the TSH, and that's it. Sure. It's not a full thyroid panel. It's not a full thyroid panel. Though I will say that at least if you get the TSH, at least we can get an idea if things are grossly abnormal. Mm-hmm. Right. But like you said, with lactation, they don't have to be grossly abnormal. They, they don't. can be just a little they bit don't. off and right. maybe even within normal limits sure. for non-lactation. I mean, most people, most places say anything under four for a TSH is considered normal. Mm-hmm. I like lactation to be like 0.2 to 2. Yeah. I like it low. I like it well yeah. controlled for lactation, especially for someone who has other risk factors for you know low supply. Mm-hmm. So I want that thyroid well controlled. But also we want them to run the A1C if somebody is getting up towards the pre-diabetic range or if you had gestational diabetes. That's a huge red flag. If you had gestational diabetes, you are by definition insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. And... If you have a family history of type two later in life, you're probably insulin resistant. And so, you know, even if that A1C is, let's say it's 5.5, that's not technically pre-diabetic. But if you're a 26-year-old 
that's too high. That's insulin resistance. Now, if you're 40, that might be different. But if you're like prime childbearing age, that's not normal. And those are things we can work on. Right. And I always tell families, like if they come back and just tell you, oh, everything was the normal limits, ask for the actual oh, yeah. values, which parents nowadays can get it through their MyChart or whatever right. client patient portal that they have access to. But before we were having those patient portals, it was like, no, ask for to see the actual lab values. Right. But we've gotten to the point in my area where we use home birth midwives now to mm-hmm. go and run labs because Good the call, providers, yeah. they're just so resistant to it. And I don't understand the mentality. Like there's no curiosity in the medical community anymore, right. especially when it comes to women and lactation. Like, oh, well, you can't make enough milk. That's okay. We have formula. There's no like, let's figure out why, because that could have whatever is going on in your body could have further yeah. implications on your overall health. I, why wouldn't you want to figure that I out? I look at lactation as like a canary in the coal mine. It's Mm. a system of your body. It's supposed Mm. to do a function. The function completely fails, like in a case of IGT or like severe thyroid issues or other endocrine issues. If lactation fails, if it literally does not work, there's something wrong with you overall. Your health is in jeopardy. We need to figure Mm. out why. Mm. I once had an endocrinologist that I went to and he was unaware that hypothyroidism could even impact lactation. And he was a thyroid specialist endocrinologist he just like really that can impact breastfeeding yeah i had no idea i'm like what did you learn and like okay so what i would tell people is this if you have low milk supply and you're worried and you want to know what's going on and you want to investigate it further find yourself an ibclc Mm -hmm. that understands low supply And I will say more of us do now than we used to but not everybody does if your first person doesn't it's okay to find somebody who you can see virtually that is an expert at this. You know, lots of us do this all the time, see people virtually. And then they'll work with you to help really ferret out the causes if that's important for you to find out. And for most people who want to have subsequent children, finding out can be important. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you're going to a provider and they're not asking your health history, they're not asking you about what your breast changes were during pregnancy or puberty, I mean, that's a red flag that they might not be that up to date on their knowledge on low milk supply. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So it seems like the biggest takeaways I've gotten today are, you know, seeing working with someone prenatally can be immensely helpful and is recommended. And working with someone who understands low milk supply. And in the end, feedings can look like however you want it to. If you don't have a full milk supply, you're still a breastfeeding parent. Your baby's still a breastfed baby if you want to continue to latch and pump. And and low milk supply does not have to be a tragedy. It can be dealt with. And if you want to nurse your baby, you can still nurse your baby. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yep. As soon as I was like, I want to talk about this topic, your name came to mind because your presentation was so amazing. Hey, thank you. So where can people connect with you and if they want to learn more about you? They can see my website, kristencavutoconsulting.com, or they can email me at kristen at kristencavutoconsulting.com. Great. I will put that in the show notes. And thank you so much for talking with us today. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaftIBCLC.com, where you can check out more options for support through pregnancy and beyond, including the Baby Pro Bistro, our parenting community. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaftIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes to help our episodes reach more parents like you. Thanks for listening.